In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Dead, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. And as always, dad is an energy, not a gender. I haven't told you this yet, but I'm starting to get a little bit of a glimmer of the Christmas spirit in my heart. It is the middle of November. It's not even snowing here. I know, but I'm starting to just feel it in my heart. It doesn't help that our niece is starting to watch her favorite movie of all time, which is Home Alone, which is a big Christmas staple for you and I. We watch it every Christmas day. But I'm starting to just like feel it in my heart. This is kind of a weird thing because as of recording this today, we're off on a week on like November break. You took the week off. Yeah, my vacation is dictated by, <laughs> by, by a school vacation, which makes me feel like a little kid. <laughs> totally. So my school district is off for November break. It's the same break that most students get for reading week in post-secondary. And my grade 12 students had a unit exam on the Friday before the break, which isn't fun, but like it's hard to start something new before a break. So it's good to finish something up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I often do that before Christmas too, where they're doing an essay before the break. And like in the last like 10 minutes of class, I just kind of looked at them as they're writing this exam. And I said, guys, it feels like we're going off on Christmas break. And a bunch of them like shook their heads and were like, it does. And I'm like, why does it feel that way? Yeah. Like there's no snow on the ground, which is peculiar for Alberta this time of year. <laughs> Climate change. Thank you. But yeah, there's just something. The, the spirit is risen. <laughs> Well, that's your Catholic school upbringing speaking, but I feel like you don't (laughs) usually, I feel like the last few years you haven't had much Christmas spirit, so. Don't know what it is, man. I'm happy to hear that. I I, I love a holiday spirit. Christmas and Halloween, basically nothing else. I don't care. I don't care about any other holidays. Yeah, they can stick it. But I like these ones. None of the movies we watched had anything to do with Christmas. You're just feeling. Just feeling it. Excited about Christmas. Maybe because I finally turned on the, the gas for the fireplace for you. And Yay. now the fireplace is making it feel a little bit 
Christmas cozy. Well, also last week was um, daylight savings time and now it's getting dark at like 5 p.m. You know, that's probably it. Which feels like time to hunker down, stay in our houses. It is cold outside. Mm-hmm. Not as cold as it will be, certainly. But Yeah. Um, speaking of hunkering down at home and just watching a bunch of movies, we are dropping another rad rap. It's coming out this upcoming Sunday as of this episode dropping. There's a new Hunger Games movie coming out. So what better opportunity to revisit all of the Hunger Games movies? So that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be covering the Hunger Games series, including the brand new one. And it's going to be dropping this Sunday. Cannot wait to share it with you all. Cannot wait to have a conversation about it. It's going to be so fun. As of this recording right now, you and I have rewatched the first two and they have been fucking awesome. So we're excited. I'm very excited for this episode. It will be a spoiler episode. Yes. So go see the new one. Yeah. Or listen to the first four movies on it and then pause, go see the new one and then come back and listen to the last little bit because I don't imagine we'll be talking about the new one in relation to the first four. Yeah. I think we will. I think now that you said that we will hold ourselves to that (laughs) and not spoil the latest Hunger Games movie. Until we get to talking about it so that you can either choose to pause or carry forth. Yes. Prime dippage accessibility. So we're very excited to share that with you. Let's get into the smackaroonies this week. We only watched four. and And none of them are in the theater. No. No theater this week. Yeah. Big at home energy. And I kick things off with a mystery movie pick. And I wanted to revisit the 2016 action, horror, thriller, and dare I say drama, Train to Busan. Still riding that Halloween high a little bit. I wanted to stay within the horror genre. But it's directed by Sang Ho Yan, and it is written by him as well as Jusuk uh, Park. And it stars Gong Yu as Suk Woo, Jung Yu Mi as Song Kyung, Madon Suk as Sang Wa, and Suan Kim as Suan, Kim Wee Sung as Yong Suk, and homeboy from Parasite Choi Woo Sik as Yong Guk. Synopsis. While a zombie virus breaks out in South Korea, passengers struggle to survive on the train from Seoul to Busan. What do you think of Train to Busan? This is one of those movies that when I watch it, I just... Really wish I've seen it in the theater. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, I think it would, I I backtrack a little bit. I do think seeing this for the first time in the theater would have been mind blowing, Mm -hmm. but it's one that I really hope one day Metro Cinema or we happen to be in a city that's playing it. It would still be mind blowing to see it having seen it before because we had seen Train to Busan once. It's not clear in my mind when we saw it. But we have seen it at home. And watching it again, I was just like bowled over by it. Like it is yeah. so good. <laughs> yeah, it's just that's, so good. That's exactly what I've written here. This movie is so good. I I've, I feel like I vaguely remember us watching it at home. And it was pretty, I feel like it was pretty soon after it got released for home release. And I had just been hearing rumors and chattering online uh, chatter online (laughs) that was saying that it was really good but i had kind of dismissed it in my head as just like oh a zombie movie that's on a train probably like a b movie whatever it is very far from a b movie 
It is perfectly paced, I'll say, at least for me. I think it expertly builds tension and I think its strongest suit is characterization because yeah, I, I don't agree. remember anybody's names throughout the movie while I'm watching it, but I know who everybody is. Yeah. And the characterization is just so simple, but it's so beautiful and so perfect. Yeah. I am such a fan of like, this almost feels to me akin to any kind of apocalypse movie. So like a war of the worlds or children of men. Yeah, sure. Um, that's not what I was thinking of, but <laughs> <laughs> sorry to step in there. Um, just anything where, so not really children of men, no. Anything where there's something immediately happening that can cause people to become separated and the humanity that exists within us, most of us, mm. causes people to help others. Like that just gets me. So kind of almost, I'm thinking War of the Worlds, like Steven Spielberg's War Isn't of the Isn't that Worlds. what I said? Did you say War of the Worlds? Yes. I thought you said World War Z. Oh, I meant to say War of the Worlds. That's oh. what I meant to say. But I don't think World War Z is wrong either. I think that- I don't remember World War Z. So possibly, but I just mean, and I'm sure there's other movies I've seen like that. I mean, even to a degree like Night of the Living Dead, just anything where people end up kind of stuck in the same space. Honestly, even that lights out episode of Friends. <laughs> where Chandler gets stuck in the phone booth with Jill Goodacre, you know? <laughs> but when the circumstances of what's going on lead people who otherwise would never really give each other the time of day or just wouldn't like wouldn't spend time together, they end up stuck in a place where they help each other. It just like really impacts me. Yeah. yeah. 28 Days Later would be another one. Yeah. Yeah, you and I have talked about just how much it just hits us right in the heart when like a ragtag group of people bond together. Like even this isn't it, but like the Goonies is just like a bunch of kids that are very different, but it's their differences that bring them together. Like helping each other out, you know? So I just, I agree with you. Like this movie, I think what makes it so good is the characterization. But then on top of that, it is really thrilling and it is really horrifying But then the characterization makes that matter and it makes you care about these thrilling and horrifying stakes beyond just, oh, I like in this movie, often in horror movies, because I'm a little freak and I think you are too. I'm like, I want somebody to get killed. Mm -hmm. I want to see the splatter. And in this, I'm like, I don't want anybody to get killed. I want them to survive. I want them to figure out a way to get to the next place and then figure out something from there. And that's because of the characters. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I mean, I, I just like, I want to highlight a few. I mean, Sue Ann Kim, who plays Sue Ann. Oh, is, that little one. She's such a little powerhouse. She's incredible. She's, she's such a good actress. All of the things we've talked about in the past about how complicated we feel about child actors. This girl will just swell and break your heart throughout this film. She's amazing. Uh, Sang Hua, <laughs> when we were watching it, you're like, well, should we just name this guy Rad Dad now? Because <laughs> <laughs> he, he's such a great character. I love his introduction I, and I love his whole arc throughout the whole movie. I'm, oh man, this is my own like therapy dad stuff. I'm just such a sucker for a like, like rough and tumble dad who's like heart is gold but he's a little grouchy at first and like 
legit, my dad wasn't even like that. My dad was like the warmest person in the world. I guess his dad was more like that. Like mm-hmm. my grandpa George, mm. where he was like a bit of a like. A little gruff, a little like kind of rough around the edges. But, but he like, really liked me. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> but like, yeah, heart of gold. Yeah. I like it's honestly, everybody is really incredible in this movie. And what's so, I think what speaks so strongly to the power of this movie is we've only seen it once before. And while we kind of both knew a lot of the major beats, we didn't fully remember it. But we knew enough about it and like what happens to certain characters, but we're still yelling at the screen. Oh, yeah. We were like, ah. And we're just like, when things happen that we don't like, we're like, please no, please no. But we know what's going to happen. I also love like closed circuit cinema. I'm just, I'm such a sucker for that idea of like you're in a limited space. And I feel like when a filmmaker does it well, they're doing that thing of like creative limitation, which then like, forces innovative ways of doing things like you know what if we did a zombie movie on a train how do you make that interesting how do you make that compelling Um, especially when zombie movies are often so much about like running away from or like barricading yourself up from and here it's like you're stuck with them what are you gonna do no absolutely and i i so appreciate that approach too because this, like I said, this could very well just have been a B movie, but the filmmakers wanted to come out of it and be like, okay, a zombies on a train movie. How do we make that compelling? And like I said, drama is not one of its signifiers, but I would add it in there because I think that it does have emotional depth and it does have drama. And it's it, a horror movie that makes you cry. Yeah. And that's, that's amazing. I, I think yeah, I was I was gonna make a comparison. I don't want to make a comparison. I'm walking it back. This is one of those movies that um, I know I love because the very next day I went to our good buddy Ashley and said, "Have you seen Train to Busan?" And when she said no, I said, "I'd like to watch that with you soon." <laughs> yes, <laughs> because anybody who's listened to this show knows that um, watching a movie a second time with Ashley is our favorite thing to do because it's kind of like watching it for the first time because she reacts so wonderfully to things Mm -hmm. i'm like i want to witness her experiencing this movie for the first time which must mean i love this movie yeah i think we're taking her out to see stop making sense this week and i don't think she's ever seen it no and i'm so excited that's just gonna be big smiles and grooves yeah um something that we talked about when we were unpacking this movie afterward is that the argument that exists between zombie movie horror fans about running zombies versus not running zombies. My argument here is that these people aren't zombies. Zombies are people that kind of, I think zombie, the word zombie is a catch all, but these aren't. And I, I consider a zombie, a undead, a person who is undead that yes. was, was dead and is now undead. This is more of a virus. 28 days later. Yeah. So it's transforming a living person into something. So they still have the ability to do so. But I'm like, fast zombies scare the shit out of me. Oh, yeah. And this movie honestly doesn't really seem to all that concerned with zombie lore. Like, there's really never any, like, how do you kill them? No. And I'm I'm happy with that because I've seen a million movies that, like, there's a portion of the film that's about, like, let's figure out how you kill them. And it's like, who cares? Just get, just run away. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think that it just adds to the, the stakes here. And you learn about the zombies as our characters do and in not like an exposition-y way. It's through the experience of having to deal with them. And there's just some incredible set pieces and some really amazing imagery. There's a there's a bit um, near the end of film that uses just like you just see a shadow instead of seeing what's actually happening. And it's so beautiful and so powerful. This movie just goes really hard and it didn't need to go as hard as it does. But that's what makes it incredible. And one of my favorite horror movies. And calling it just a horror movie feels not big enough but it's one of the best zombie apocalypse genre movies how does it make you feel train to facade makes me feel a thrilling tension and eventually very big tears yes you makes me feel astounded by this powerhouse of a film the next movie we watched was my mystery movie pick and it was something we've been trying to watch for a very long time with the caveat that it came out this year, but we've been trying to watch it since it first came out this year. I picked Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. It's a 2023 comedy drama family film directed and written by Kelly Fremont Craig and based on the book by Judy Bloom, of course. It stars Abby Ryder Fortson as Margaret, Rachel McAdams as Barbara, Kathy Bates as Sylvia, Benny Safdie as Herb, and Elle Graham as Nancy. And there's a lot of other little nuggets in here who do a really good job. I was honestly impressed with everyone in the cast, but those are kind of our main people. Mm-hmm. Synopsis, when her family moves from the city to the suburbs, 11-year-old Margaret navigates new friends, feelings, and the beginning of adolescence. What did you think of Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. I was really looking forward to seeing this in the theater, and I'm sad that the timing just didn't work out for us. But also discovering that Kelly Freeman Craig, the writer-director of this is the writer-director of Edge of 17. I'm like, oh, this is the perfect choice. We didn't really love Edge of 17, but I think we appreciated the craft. Exactly. Like, I, I really like her voice. Yes, that's a good way to put that. And that worked really well for me, and I thought that that was a good choice for this film. I want to kind of get into the history of the story, because, I mean, I didn't grow up with this the way that so many people did, specifically girls or femme people did. What's your history with this? So Judy Bloom is kind of a like rite of passage, I think, especially for, I have to acknowledge, like I'm speaking from a white middle, upper middle class suburban perspective, which is who Margaret is, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So those were books that just, particularly this book, but Judy Bloom's books in general are books that it feels like they just appear in your room one day, you know, and (laughs) you just, you have to read them. Like, I don't recall any, anybody handing me a Judy Bloom book, but I have very distinct memories of all of my friends. And I had this little group of uh, four, there was four of us, um, four girls that we were friends and we all read this at the same time. And then we did things from the book. Mm -hmm. We did the chant. Yeah. You know, we, you know, for some of us, that was our first kind of introduction into some of the things that were going to happen to our bodies that later on would be taught to us by like health class. But this was actually our first kind of introduction to it was through these books. And 
And the Judy Bloom's books don't talk down to the reader. Like they, they talk to the reader mm. um, and allow all that messiness. And I think especially when we were growing up in the nineties, there weren't a lot of books that took girlhood seriously, mm. like all of its messiness, all of its complication. And, and of course this is like a limited perspective and it was a perspective that spoke to me, but it was something that I, I really liked. Now I wasn't a Judy Bloom like fiend. I haven't read everything that she's written, but this one in particular was a staple. And then of course she also wrote like fudge and um, super fudge or is it just fudge. I don't know. I think it's called freckle juice actually. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she wrote those books, which I pretty sure you like you. Oh, tales of a fourth grade. Nothing. That's what they're called. The fudge series. Oh, uh, but you would have studied that in school. I imagine. I honestly don't know. Did you read any of them? Double fudge, fudge mania, super fudge. I think I think I've read super fudge, or had super fudge read to me. Yeah, I think that. Um, I think I, I swear she wrote one called Freckle Juice. That sounds yeah. familiar. And I think I studied it in in school, um, or at least I read it. But she wrote a lot of other ones that were kind of about like more pubescent or post pubescent um, girls. Like I think there's one called Tiger Lily. Um, she's just like a pretty phenomenal writer who, you know, took what kids are going through seriously and, oh yeah, she wrote Blubber. I read that. Deanie, Forever, Tiger Eyes, that's what it's called. Um, so I read a lot of them, but I wouldn't say that I like had all of her books because like very quickly progressed into Stephen King, (laughs) 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 which is a totally different thing. But yeah, these just, these books just have this like kind of nostalgia in my heart even if they aren't ones that I've revisited a lot and what I read about this movie is that like Judy Bloom's had offers over the years and she's been pretty particular about like most of her work hasn't been made into film or TV Mm -hmm. and I think that's because she's very choosy about if she'll give the rights up to it or not like she clearly it's not about money for her Mm -hmm. Um, it's about like will this do right by the books and characters um, and she liked Kelly Freeman Craig's work and she thought, yep, she's the right person to do this. And so she agreed to it. Um, I also want to mention here before we start talking about the movie proper, there's a really beautiful song and a really, really beautiful music video called Judy Bloom by the artist Amanda Palmer that I think really speaks to what Judy Bloom's work has meant to a lot of people. And, and we'll link to that in the show notes, because I think if you like Judy Bloom even a little bit, um, watching the video is pretty it's a pretty emotional and beautiful video. I really love how you described it as you just reach a certain age and Judy Bloom books just are on your shelf in your room. I think I think that's just it's really beautiful. It hit me right in the heart. I like that. Um, so ter- then what was it like to watch this movie as someone who really doesn't have a connection to Judy Bloom or at least specifically this book? I mean... I just thought that this movie was great. And even though I didn't grow up with Judy Bloom and her stories, this spoke to me on a a very young person level. You know, even though I'm not, I'm not Margaret and I, I'm, I, I'm not a, I'm not a little girl that's living in the suburbs, but like growing up and living in the suburbs and like, coming into your own and discovering who you are at this very specific age. Very relatable. To what degree do you think 
you're more moved by these kinds of depictions because we have so many nieces. More so, for sure. Because I feel we, when we watch stuff like this, you and I almost inevitably have a conversation of looking at our nieces and like seeing certain maybe and like trying to guess like what kind of paths they'll go down and what kind of characters they could relate to and who they might be and choices they might make and stuff like that. And I definitely see more of that reflected since having little nibblings in our life. I mean, we have a niece who's 11, so she's essentially where Margaret is. And some of the stories that she (laughs) tells us that I ask her about, it's very similar. Like it's just this very awkward age of, trying to figure out who you are, how you fit in, what do you love, what do you hate, trying to be cool, but trying to be an individual. It's so hard. It's so difficult. And I mean, I'm sure everybody says this, but Margaret has this group of four friends. And like I had through elementary school, this group of four friends. And I really feel like I was the Margaret. Mm, That checks out. And like I could, I'm not going to name the other people. You know who they are, mm-hmm. but I feel like they all slot into one of those characters pretty 100%. particularly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you could probably, da- we would agree on them all, I am sure. So there's just something so relatable about this. Now, Margaret's family structure, I really don't relate to. She's an only child and mm-hmm. she's got two very present, very amazing parents. I thought that this movie so clearly loves the source material. I was going to ask you, like, how did it shape up as an adaptation for you? I mean, I haven't read the book in a really long time. I think I reread it when I heard that they were making it into a movie, but that was a long time ago. Yeah. um, When it was like, oh, they're finally making this into a movie. But I just thought that it was so sweet and it captured something very relatable. And I think it did a really... So I truly believe, and this is interesting, we talked about at the beginning how we're going to be covering The Hunger Games. I didn't reread the books leading up to us rewatching the movies, and you've never read the books, but I did just recently read the prequel, mm-hmm. um, and I'm right now trying to find a copy of Eileen by Atessa Moshvig so I can read that before I see the movie, because <laughs> I'm a very big proponent of reading the book before you see the movie, although trying not to read it too close to when you see the movie, because then you can't separate them. But I think that when... One medium is translated into another medium, and so often it is book to movie, but it can be movie to to miniseries. It can be a lot of different things. Yeah. It needs to be doing something to justify its transformation into this medium. Yeah. You know, or like video game into miniseries, right? Like we need, there needs to be a reason that you're doing it or why do it. I don't believe in being so precious that you like can't do it. Like, Folks who are like, oh, if you can't play The Last of Us video game, you don't deserve to watch the miniseries. Screw you, right? Like, there are lots of reasons that people might not play the video game, but will watch the miniseries. And they're both beautiful in their own ways. And I feel the way that same way about this book. And I feel like something really wonderful that Kelly Freeman Craig did is kind of adapt it up to make it like a little bit. I mean, it's still set in the 70s, but (laughs) one of the things. That's so funny about reading. And I feel I could be wrong about this, but I feel like there's actually um, new editions of Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, that adapt this because a big part of it is like menstruation and like wanting to get your period. But the original version of the book has pads that you like hook onto like a garter belt in and like they're Mm -hmm. like nobody uses those. Mm -hmm. And so then people, 
you know, I read that when I was younger and was like, what the hell is this? Yeah. Like, don't even know. So like those will get adapted to fit with the times. Mm. And I feel like while it is still set in the seventies, there's a contemporary feeling to it at the same time. Um, no, she didn't try and make it like cell phones and, and all of that. But the other thing that Kelly Freeman Craig did is she made the character of Barbara played by Rachel McAdams, a key part of the text. Cause in the original book, it's all for first person mm-hmm. and you don't really get any insight beyond this peripheral existence of Margaret's parents. And in the movie, Rachel McAdams character, Barbara is a key character. Yes. And I thought that that was done beautifully. I agree. It, and it just made me, it just reminded me of how much I really like Rachel McAdams. I think that she's just a lovely actress. And from the things I've heard about her, a super lovely person as well. And she's Canadian. So I know there's just like this, this thing about that. So I have a quote from Kelly Freeman Craig, which I thought was really beautiful. And I think just shows you how much she appreciates Judy Bloom's source material, loves the book and also wants to be like mindful of like, what is the purpose of turning it into a film? So she said, quote, I'm always cognizant of shifting uh, point of view in a film where you can do it and how to do it in a way that threads through and isn't distracting from the story. When I reread the book as an adult, I was really struck by Barbara. Whereas when I read it as a kid, I was oblivious to the parents. I was oblivious to anything that didn't have to do with the kids. But there were a few little seeds in there that made me think Barbara was an interesting character. And I wanted to see what would happen if we dug deeper into her and gave her her own journey. And I'm a mom who struggled with balancing my role with my career and how much time I devote to my career. So I wanted to explore that. A lot of the maternal guilt I feel, you know, because I do work so much. I wanted to explore all that in Barb's character. The seeds were there in the book. So I was able to plant them to seed to or plant them to see what would grow. That's beautiful. Cause I think I, I love that she took that experience in her own life and translated it into film. But we've talked about this multiple times on the show, specifically when we choose to revisit films that we grew up with of seeing them in a new light of seeing them from the adults view and finding connective tissue between us and that character or being able to relate to them more or just seeing them in a new light. And it's it's really beautiful when movies that you watch so much as a little nugget reveal a whole nother thing to you watching it as an adult. It's real special. This is one of those movies that like I think I would have really enjoyed seeing with my mom. Yeah. Like I think that we'd both be nudging each other a lot and really smiling. I just I thought it was really lovely. I also thought Benny Safdie was really sweet in it. It's literally the least chaotic thing I've seen a Safdie involved in. And, and he's, a, he's a real cutie sweetie in it. He's like the, everybody's a cutie sweetie. He's the in sweetest this. dad. Yeah. It was just, it was well made. It was well acted. It had good themes. It was wholesome. It was sweet. We smiled a lot. We laughed a lot. We did watch it on Stars, which like pee pee poo poo, big thumbs down to Stars because there's something wrong with that channel. Yeah. I, I don't know. It like flashes green and we made it like 40 minutes into it without that happening. And then it started happening and then we just like dealt with it. Well, it's it's one thing or another. Like w- our experience with stars throughout any time using it is that the subtitles are piss poor, but the picture's fine or the subtitles in this case were fine, but it like beeps and bloops green randomly, which is really infuriating when it's a service that you pay money for. Yeah. Um. But yeah, just a couple stray thoughts. Kathy Bates is really good at playing a mom, especially an overbearing mom. Yeah. That's like her jam in her like in her latter years is like that's what she is really great at. And I mean, just watch Misery. She's always been great at being overbearing. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
And it just captured that preteen phase excellently. And I can so see, even having not read the book, but I can see why it's such an iconic staple for so many young people. I have a really funny piece of trivia for you. Mm -hmm. So this was filmed in the same place and at the same time as the black phone. (laughs) And I guess in the graduation scene, the grabber's van is there. (laughs) Oh, amazing. (laughs) And I don't think it's done on purpose. It's just like... It's like, what movie were we watching where you were like, oh, that's filmed on the same lot as Canada's Worst Driver? Because oh, it was one of the Saw oh, movies. because yeah, it says CWD5. <laughs> so it's just one of those, like, it's there and they didn't take it out. But that's kind of dark because isn't the black phone set around the same time? One of yeah. Margaret's friends is going to get snatched. I, I love I love thinking that the Are You There, God Is Me, Margaret universe shares the same universe as the black phone. <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> Last thing I'm going to say is the specificity of the grammar in the title is awesome, yeah. but like hard to make sure you get right. Yeah. Um, hilarious. Okay. What, how did Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, make you feel? Just swept up in the sweetness. I had a great time with this movie. How did it make you feel? It made me feel charmed by the sweet portrayal of a girlhood that's relatable to me. That's beautiful, babe. We're going somewhere else pretty sweet. Yep. This was my mystery movie pick, and I chose the 1995 comedy drama family film Babe or Bebe. <laughs> Not Bebe. <laughs> uh, it was directed by Chris Noonan, written by, uh, the novel is written by Dick King Smith, but it was, screenplay was by Chris Noonan as well as Mr. Mad Max himself, George Miller. And it stars Christine Cavanaugh as the voice of Babe. Miriam Margolis as the voice of Fly, Hugo Weaving as the voice of Rex, Miriam Flynn as the voice of Ma, Danny Mann as the voice of Ferdinand, Roscoe Lee Brown as the voice of the narrator, and old long boy himself, we love him, Jimmy Croms or James Cromwell as Farmer Hoggett. Synopsis, Babe, a pig raised by sheepdogs on a rural English, on a rural English, English. English. On a rural English farm, learns to herd sheep with a little help from Farmer Hoggett. What do you think of Babe? It's so hard to not talk about Babe in relation to being a vegetarian. I think that's the point. Yes. Um, So I guess a little background. We've been vegetarian for well over a decade now. Vegan at times. And I, I often describe us as vegan adjacent. Like we eat vegan fairly often but we're not perfect at it um we were pretty good at it during the pandemic and then our ethical compass got a little screwed up by how difficult the world was um but we have been firmly vegetarian have we talked about that in detail on the show before i think we've mentioned we're vegetarians but i mean we're not we're no propaganda machine Um, and it hasn't really been relevant to many of the things that we, that we do, but I want to talk a little bit about my journey with vegetarianism because I tried to be vegetarian many times before you and I became vegetarian. And I don't think that's the same with you. Like the story goes that when I was really little, I think probably three or four and I found out, and I think this happens to a lot of kids. Like I found out that that what I was eating was animals, I didn't want to eat it anymore. Mm -hmm. And I told my parents I wasn't going to eat it anymore. And I 
I don't have really a memory of this. I've just been told it by my family, um, my parents specifically. And then they lied to me and they said, no, it's actually trees. Like steak is made of bark, um, mm. which is rude, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I was, so then, you know, whatever. And I think eventually I realized they were liars um, and just whatever. I just kept eating meat. When I was in grade 12, I watched a class, I watched a video in biology class about harvesting pigs um, for medical reasons, like for their hearts and for things like that. Um, And I found it really disturbing. We weren't meant to find it disturbing, but I was very upset by it. And I remember it's like, look at the science. Can you believe the science? And I was like, there we're literally raising animals to kill them and, and take their parts to save us. Um, And I, I was really, really upset about it. And then I had this kind of like, big light bulb reflective moment where I'm like, but that's what we do with meat. So if I have a problem with that, when it's about saving a human's life, I should really have a problem with it when like, we don't actually have to eat those things. Um, And so I tried to be vegetarian, but again, my family was not very supportive, especially living in in like Leduc, a smaller community at the time, um, not having a car and it being a bit of a food desert at the time, I think it's a lot easier to find vegetarian stuff in Leduc now than it was in 2007, 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom was basically like, fine, but if I make meat and gravy that has meat in it, then you can just have potatoes with nothing on it. And that's your dinner. Um, You're punished basically. Yeah. For, <laughs> I'm, yeah. It was do what you want, but I'm not helping you do it. Yeah. Um, and I tried really hard and I think I was really unhealthy <laughs> for the better part of my grade 12 year. And then I was just like this, like this isn't good for me to be just like eating this, whatever can be eaten. And I'm, and I just didn't have the means to go get my own stuff. So then I started eating meat again. Yeah. And then you and I, when we moved out together, when we were 21, we kind of kept going back and forth. Like I'd want to be vegetarian, but you wouldn't. And then you would, but I wouldn't. And then we both read the book eating animals by Jonathan Safran Foer back to back. And we were like, okay, that's it. And for a long time, we'd been buying only um, like local meat mm-hmm. um, like that hadn't been factory farmed. And then we were like, you know what? We're not even going to do that. And eating animals is actually not about being vegetarian. It's about being anti-factory farming. But we were like, I think we've reached a point. And that would have been probably in like 2012, 2013. Yeah. And we've never eaten meat since. Yeah. My story is a little bit shorter of my history on my journey to vegetarianism but yeah I think it was in junior high maybe early high school where I started really thinking about just the reality of eating animals and what we do to animals in order to eat them and how unethical things can be and how just gruesome and nasty people can be to animals And I didn't really have, I didn't really know how to go about wanting to be vegetarian. Like I'm, I wasn't and still am not a good cook and don't have a desire to cook. And my family growing up was not really, it was very, a lot of the meals I had growing up were very much like, let's throw everything into like a brew or to like a pot or onto a skillet and it's all just like one thing that you just fill a bowl with and that's what you eat which is great but like it's all kind of meat based and then yeah I just I had so much I it was that cognitive dissonance thing 
of like, if I don't think about the fact that I'm eating animals, then I don't have to worry about it. And once, yeah, once we got together and started talking about it more and thinking about it more, yeah, it was kind of that bounce back and forth between me wanting to do it and you and you didn't and then vice versa. Then, yeah, reading that damn book, that's definitely what put us over the edge and was like, I'm ready to commit to this. And it, fe- it feels really good. And I, I like the way that we go about it because we're not like, rah, rah, you need to stop doing this immediately. But whenever people ask, like, why don't you eat meat? I would say, <laughs> I mean. You stole this from James Cromwell, actually. This I know. is his line. <laughs> and it's perfect. And I, I don't say it passive aggressively. I say it earnestly. When people ask why I don't eat meat, I say it's because I love animals. And I don't want to eat them. Hmm. We got in a very heated debate with a friend of ours last year, I think. Um, oh, it was <laughs> You're kind of, I, yep. it was around this trolley car problem question that came up of if you were uh, standing on the side of the road and there was a bus coming, I think I might be paraphrasing, and a person stepped out and a, and a dog stepped out at the same time, which would you save first? And our friend very adamantly wanted to save the person and you and I without blinking an eye, we're like, well, we're going to save the dog. Yeah, the, the kind of starting point for this was uh, hearing somebody speak who said that, who who quite, like, what's the word I'm looking for, who quite definitively said human lives are more valuable than animal lives. Which, first yes. of all, I don't believe that human lives and animal lives are different because I believe that humans are animals. Yep. Um, and And then we kind of got into this, we created this trolley problem in discussion with three of our friends. The five of us were talking because you and I were saying, we don't think a human's life is more valuable than a dog's life. Yeah. Um, and, and then we were kind of going through all of these scenarios and it, yeah, it did get really heated. And um, two of our, the other friends were being kind of shysters and just trying to poke, poke it and yeah. stoke the fire. And um, I don't think we ended up in a place where we all agreed, but you yeah. and I were very much like, we're not saying we would inherently save a dog over a human, but that we think it's... I wouldn't push the human to save the no, dog or anything. But that there's a... For us, there's a problem in definitively saying human that lives. an animal life matters less. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, I think that that actually makes... That's a problem in our world. Like, if we if we start saying that with no nuance, no complexity, no ability to discuss it, this matters less than that mm-hmm. we're in a we're in a really gross place a really dangerous place that proliferates into other areas that aren't about humans and animals that are about look at some of the shit that's going on right now in the world 100 percent, right and and i've taken classes in university i took an ecofeminisms class where one of my favorite things that i read was um oh i think it was called being prey and it was about a woman who was almost killed by a crocodile oh. or an alligator or something and uh she talked about that experience of like being on the other side of the food chain where like we actually are inherently meant to be, but we've created these systems where we aren't um, and how sobering that was. And I believe she was a vegan before and she was still a vegan after, but then she like spoke about that in relation to this experience. So none of this is about the movie, babe. Maybe we should talk about that movie. (laughs) I mean, this movie, my history with it is I didn't watch it a lot as a kid, but I loved it as a kid. And anytime I popped it on, I was, I I loved it 
so. And this movie just speaks to my soul so much so that I wonder if it did pave my path (laughs) to my adult life and not eating animals, not having kids, (laughs) loving James Cromwell, and that ultimately Christmas means carnage. (laughs) I mean, according to Wikipedia, and honestly, I believe it, this film... Like you can pinpoint this film and then look at the statistics and that it had a significant effect on a growth in vegetarianism among youth specifically. Wow. Um, that like you can look at the stats and and it's aligned with when this movie came out. Um, and I mean, just look at the fact that James Cromwell was not vegan before he made this movie. And this movie came out in 1995 Five. and he's been vegan ever since. Mm-hmm. So for 30 years. Yeah. Um, and something that he said is it was the experience of making this movie, the subject matter of the movie, and then, you know, working with the animals on the movie. And and it seems to me that they were very, very, very careful to be ethical with the animals they were working with. Um, but he said, quote, I decided that to be able to talk about this movie with conviction, I needed to become a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's put on events like vegan Christmas um, dinners for um, houseless folks but they're vegan mm. um, specifically to combat Christmas's carnage. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Um, so I think that if looking at how this film did that to James Cromwell, it's no surprise that it did that to little kiddos watching it and being like, well, I don't want to eat babe. Yeah. I mean, this is very, I was obsessed with Charlotte's web as a kid. Yeah. Same. And I feel like there's an equivalency there. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Certainly there's some vegetarian leanings in Charlotte's web as well. Yeah. And this movie, it's, it's so full of silliness. It's so full of heart. It has some real hard doses of reality. It confronts societal issues that are very much still relevant today. Um, and I, I still, I can't believe that George Miller, like Mad Max, George Miller is behind this. I, I love that so much. Well, I think because it's interesting, this film is to me not so much about not eating animals as it is a like parable for like working in community across difference. Yeah. And not judging someone and and deciding what they are or are not capable of or how they should or should not be valued based on a preconceived notion or what other people have said to you, right? At the end of the day, that's what this film is about to me. It's about community, changing our expectations, being open to changing our expectations, and the individual capacity for growth. Like, we see through the character of Farmer Hoggett that, like, there is an ability for a person to undo what they have learned, unlearn things, and change and grow. And if, if that isn't a lesson that we need right now, as we all keep listening specifically to what's going on in Palestine and trying to talk to folks in our lives, I've had a lot of people who, you know, I think through hearing and, and listening in the last week have been coming and talking to me about things that I think even two weeks ago they would have felt differently about. And this film, I think, has some lessons about that in it. Absolutely. And also I'll say that I've never, I've, I've, I haven't seen a character more in tune with his animals than Farmer Hoggett. Except for that cat. Yeah. <laughs> Heavens. Um, 
yeah, like the emotional core, like the stuff that really gets me is all the like the connection between Babe and all of the other animals and between him and Father Hoggett and everything that goes on between Babe and the sheepdogs and the sheep. And what really like just buttons all of that is the narration that comes in when it does. It just really, <laughs> it really stirs me emotionally. And I was so happy yet surprised to learn like this was nominated for seven Oscars, <laughs> including Best Picture and Jimmy Crom's in Supporting Actor. It's the only Oscar nomination he's ever gotten. So it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Art Direction, Best Film Editing, and Best Visual Effects, which it won for. Yeah. Uh, incredible. And the visual effects hold up. Like, yeah. I think it looks really good. There was a moment where I was like, I really don't think it's cool that they put paint on a cat and a pig. And you're like, that's not a cat and a pig. That's an animatronic. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, <laughs> Well, and then and then you started being like, no, there's been an animatronic the whole time. And I was like, I didn't notice because <laughs> it's nose was wet. <laughs> I thought that was a real thing. But like you said, like, I think it's really nice when you watch all the credits like we do. Instead of just a no animals were hurt in the making of this movie. There's like a huge paragraph that takes up most of the screen when it's there that describes what they did for the animal treatment and what they did to represent the animals. In yeah. The and film. it seems like based on that paragraph and what I read afterwards that they used an animatronic in any scene where it may have been distressing to use a real animal. Yeah. And that's amazing. I, yeah, I just think that is so, so cool. And I also think there's this, this film is just like a beating heart for like ethics, inclusivity, growth, empathy. And a great example of this is, so the little mice, which I think are so hilarious. Mm -hmm. um, There's these chapter titles, which were put in to kind of pay homage to the book, even though they're not the chapters from the book. Mm -hmm. And the mice read the chapter titles. In the original version of the film, they didn't read the chapter titles, but George Miller was in a screening where he saw kids asking their parents what it said and -hmm. the parents having leaning in to lean in to tell them. And he was like, oh, I made this movie for kids and kids can't read that. And so they re they they changed that to have the mice read the titles so that kids would know what it said. Mm. And that's the heart of the film to me, like just in a different way. I just think that's so beautiful. Um, there is now, pun intended, some beef between Chris Noonan and George Miller oh, about yeah. this movie. Mm. Yes. Um, and it actually goes back to what you said, which you're like when you said, I can't believe George Miller was behind this all because Chris Noonan believes that his contributions to this film have been sidelined by George Miller and that everybody thinks of this as a George Miller film. And that in fact, a lot of people think he directed it and they associate his name with it and that he's been lost in it all, even though he was the director. Well, sorry, Chris Noonan. I mean, I think but those two have like major beef about it. I, and I think it doesn't help that the second babe movie was directed by George Miller. Well, so, so this is what Chris Noonan said. He said, quote, I don't want to make a lifelong enemy of George Miller, but I thought that he tried to take credit and it made me very insecure. It was like your guru had told you that you were no good and that is really disconcerting. And then George Miller has said, quote, Chris said something that is defamatory, that I took his name off the credits on Internet sites, which is just absolutely untrue. You know, I'm sorry, but I really have a lot more to do with my life than worry about that. When it comes to Babe, the vision was handed to Chris on a plate. So that's a shame that this is such a lovely film and that these two guys... But heads about it. So Chris Noonan, we see your contributions. We see you. We appreciate you. I'm just glad 
that you guys all got together at some point and made this movie at all. Can I tell you a really cute thing that James Cromwell said? Of course. So he almost didn't take this role and he was a struggling actor at the time, actually, um, because he looked at the script and Farmer Hoggett only has 16 lines in the whole movie. And he was like, I don't know about that. But he talked to a friend and the friend said, quote, it's a free ticket to Australia. And if the movie tanks, it's not your fault. It's the pig's fault. (laughs) And so he was like, "Okay, sure, I'll go to Australia. And it changed his life. Yeah. Like, I mean, as we can see, it's the only Oscar nomination he's ever gotten. And so he has said, quote, I got a lot out of the film and it turned my whole life around. I didn't have to audition anymore. But then, of course, beyond that, I mean, there's a key part of his ethics and his advocacy and something that he believes about the world that changed in making this film. And so I think this is a real like say yes to things, say yes to opportunities moment, because had he said no to it and been like, it's only 16 lines. That's stupid. Um, who knows where he'd be. And we wouldn't have him in six feet under and we wouldn't have him in the green mile. Um, I don't know. Is that when did the green mile come out? 98, 99. 99 yeah. So we might not have him in the green mile. And those are two of our favorite things ever. So he, his performances in this film is so beautiful and complex. And I feel like he's characterized so well and i i love how tuned into the animals he is and only 16 lines or not anytime he's on screen he's magnetic and i think that that's the beauty of it right that he managed to do manages to do so much with like such minimal dialogue i don't know i think this movie depending on the time i watch it I could ball like a baby. I didn't this time, but um, I think I could. I got welly in a few parts for sure. This is also one that we watched more than once with our oldest nibbling mm-hmm. when she was little and she really liked it. Yeah, she liked the mice. I mean, lot. so do I. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I feel like I take something away from this film every time I watch it. It's it's lovely. It's one of my It's one of my favorites from my childhood and it's just one of my favorite movies. How does it make you feel? It makes me feel so much love in my little vegetarian heart. <laughs> How about you? Just so seen and so adoring of this little sweetie cutie of a movie. Hey, last movie of the week, my mystery movie pick. I picked the drama fantasy war film, 2006 Pan's Labyrinth. It was directed and written by Guillermo del Toro, and it stars Ivana Baquero as Ophelia Ariadna Gill as Carmen, Sergei Lopez as Vidal, Maribel Verdu as Mercedes, Doug Jones as both Fano and the Pale Man, and Alex Angulo as Dr. Ferrero. Ferrero Rocher. Rocher, baby. Synopsis. In the Falangist Spain of 1944, the bookish young stepdaughter of a sadistic army officer escapes into an eerie but captivating fantasy world. What did you think of Pan's Labyrinth? When I was thinking about the first time that I saw this, I watched it at home, which like good for me because I sought I sought it out and just watched it by myself. Which is I feel like this is a bit of like a deeper cut movie when it came out at the time. So cool guy. But like the main thing that stuck out for me with it is how both I, I, I so love magical realism, but the violence in this movie fucked me up. And it's always just, it's always something 
when as somebody who at that point and even now who watches a lot of horror movies and gory movies and action movies that there are certain there's certain kind of violence that can still really affect me i think it's that hyper real violence right yeah absolutely but just getting back to magical realism like we've talked about this before like that's our jam we really like magical realism in the films that we watch but then and rewatching it now, I just find this endlessly compelling and just so immersive. I just get lost in this world and I both love being in it and hate being in it. Do you know my story of the first time I saw it? No. So I'm an even cooler guy than you because I saw it in the theater. It's pretty cool. Um, and I saw it. I know the exact date I saw it. I saw it on Valentine's Day. <laughs> With my grade 11 boyfriend. Hell yeah. Um, I think I remember that we were going to go to dinner in a movie and he let me pick the movie and he picked the restaurant. I also remember this being a Valentine's Day where I was like, he got me flowers and he got me chocolates and he brought them to school. And I was like, none of this is me. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't need flower chocolate. Yes, but not in a heart shaped box. It's not even good chocolate. Buy me a fucking Twix. Like, and not on Valentine's Day, any day. Or fit the theme for Aurora Rochers. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but we, we went and saw it in the theater and I picked it. And I distinctly remember because at the, when the title card came up at the end of watching this, you, it said it was rated R and you said, are you surprised? And I said, yes, because I could have sworn it was 14A in Canada because when we saw it, the person at the theater thought I was under 14 and wasn't going to let me in. <laughs> And I mean, granted, I am very short and the person I was dating in grade 11 was six foot four and like a Dutch dairy farmer and was like kind of like, like musclier. Um, So mm -hmm. I guess it looked like he was taking his little sister to the movies. I don't know. Um, but we were the same age. In fact, I am 10 days older than him. Um, <laughs> and I, I don't think I had ID and I just was like, I, I'm, I'm not under 14. <laughs> <laughs> and they like let us go. I don't know because he wasn't 18. So then he like couldn't bring me in or something. I don't know. It was a whole thing. So I checked and it is 14A in Canada. So my memory is accurate on that. Um, but I remember I really, really liked the movie uh, at the time and I really wanted to see it. And it was I, I, I don't remember the specifics of seeing it in the theater, but I know that it just completely compelled me. Um, and I haven't revisited it a lot, but it was something that I was like, I really want to see this again and see if I'm as compelled. And I absolutely was. Yeah. Like I use the word immersive before because it just this is something that I feel Guillermo del Toro especially is really good at. And it's what I so appreciate about him and his approach to cinema are the worlds that he builds in the films that he makes. I just find them so dreamlike and whimsical and wonderful and while I don't absolutely love all of his movies or think think that they are the biggest slam dunks ever, granted, I do want to revisit quite a few of them. I just really love his approach to filmmaking and how he speaks about it. Yeah, you know, that was something I was reflecting on in watching this is like, A, I actually haven't seen as many Guillermo del Toro films as I thought I had. Mm -hmm. Like, I haven't seen Crimson Peak. I haven't seen Hellboy. We haven't seen Nightmare Alley. Um, we haven't seen some of his, like the devil's backbone that came out before this. Um, 
So I'm like, you know, I'm kind of basing this, I guess, on Pan's Labyrinth, The Shape of Water, and Pinocchio, <laughs> um, which actually isn't that much of his work. But I think that he does such a beautiful job of dark fantasy mm. and using that to show the bleakness of the world and the humanity that exists within that bleakness mm-hmm. across all of the films that we've seen of his, even even though Pan's Labyrinth, The Shape of Water and Pinocchio are quite different in terms of their tone. Mm-hmm. They all have that kind of weaving through them. But then beyond that, I just really like the way he talks about art. Yes. And the way he talks about like what art means as a creator, what it means as a viewer and what it means as a human. Yeah. Um, he just seems like a cool guy who just like, Loves I don't know. Boys. It's like, it's like the way that I feel about Stephen King where I'm like, he just, he likes doing what he does and, and is all of his stuff a slam dunk? No, but who cares? Yeah. And something I really like too that exists even most more recently in Pinocchio is that the, 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 the magical part of things where, you know, typically there would be a light that, counteracts the dark is that even the light stuff is dark yes like the character of the fawn in this as soon as he shows up and appears to be on the side of ophelia as an audience we don't trust him we're we question him that's where i think what he does so beautifully is look at how it isn't light or dark it's they're always intermixed they're not opposing forces they are a part of the same mosaic Right. Mm. Um, And I think that's so true of life. And then he's using his films to speak about that truth in the world that both in the quote real world in Pan's Labyrinth, there is both humanity, compassion, empathy and extreme violence and disregard for like any kind of compassion. But that also exists in the magical world. Mm-hmm. Like both of those things are true of both worlds. And so this escape into this, you know, as per the synopsis, um, captivating fantasy world actually isn't that much of an escape at all. Mm-hmm. Um, if the one thing I think that this fantasy world offers Ophelia is some sense of control or at least some sense of I am doing something because she's so um, shackled. Right. Yeah. Like she like has she, no agency. It's yeah. completely taken away from her by her mother, um, by like where she's living. And while there's people who love her and show her compassion, she still can't really do things of her own accord. And so the fantasy world offers her that. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it actually offers her an escape. No. Right. And she like. It, it, it feels like it should like as an audience member, I, f- I felt like as soon as magical stuff shows up, you're like, Oh, this is like, this is going to help things out. This is going to get her out of a situation or whatever it is. But no, she's still responsible for getting herself out of all of the scenarios that she's in. Yeah. I think it's a, I think it's an absolutely brilliant weaving of reality and magic. And in a way that when you and I talk about, we love that magical realism. I think that's why we like magical realism is because it suggests that, magic is a part of our everyday world, but not in this like extreme it'll save us way, mm-hmm. but just like there is magic in the everyday and magic isn't always this beautiful light. Yeah. Right. 
Now, uh, Guillermo del Toro has said that he was inspired by Alice in Wonderland and totally. Yeah. Um, he also, he, I read this big list of, I don't know all of the references, but he said he was also inspired by Jorge Luis Borges' Ficcione. So I'm assuming that is some Spanish fairy tale writing. Mm-hmm. Um, Arthur Machin's The Great God Pan and the White People, two different texts. Lord Ducine's The Blessing of Pan, um, Algernon Blackwood's Pan's Garden, and the artwork of Goya. So like, that's that one with Kronos eating his children. Oh, fuck yeah. I get it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, put that and Alice in Wonderland together and you've got it. Um, but this is, I think, such great insight into an artist's brain. Um, Guillermo del Toro has talked about how when he was a child, he had a recurring nightmare where in the nightmare he would wake up and it was midnight and he would look at his grandfather's clock and a fawn would gradually step out from behind it. Oh God. So that's like the genesis of this film, right? And then he uses that to speak about the Spanish civil war. And I bet there's even more richness if either you, you have like personal ties to that or you understand history and politics more than I do. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I really like Guillermo del Toro. I like wish I was like a super fan, but whenever I engage with one of his texts, I'm moved in some way, even if it's not my favorite movie I've ever seen. Yeah. And like, that's why I want to revisit his work because maybe it just hasn't fully opened itself up to me yet because I feel like rewatching Pan's Labyrinth now did that on this viewing. Like I feel like I've, I've ascended to another level of liking and appreciating this film so much because I like and appreciate Guillermo del Toro as a filmmaker so much more. Um, a couple highlights just about characters in this film. I mean, I think Ophelia is the perfect child protagonist that we've seen, we've seen previously, but I don't feel like we've seen that sort of character in a world like this. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, she's just, she's a fantastic protagonist. Uh, Captain Vidal is one of the most detestable characters in cinema. I hated him then and I hated him now. I think he's just deplorable, nasty, just the pinnacle of worst man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but a character that really stood out for me that I hadn't in me- when I think about it, never really in the past, but the character Mercedes. Oh, so like she is the light in the human world, right? Yeah. And they, she's given a moment near the end of the film, which is one of the most, she delivers a line that's so badass. And she fucking like interrupts somebody to say it. And it's just such a like, uh, like sticking up the middle finger. Yeah, she's great. She also, I mean, she's the one who sings the. <laughs> oh, yeah. You can get me with like an eerie little lullaby. Yeah. Um, really works for me. Between the Hunger Games and, and this, we've got lots of mouth sounds to make. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, major highlight. Uh, for this film and I can totally see why is just that is how gorgeous it is and how gorgeous this character design is and which is why it won Oscars for art direction and for makeup. I mean I'm so tickled by the fact that the two movies we watched this week that had multiple Oscar noms are Babe and Pan Labyrinth. <laughs> so this was nominated for Best Original Screenplay, Best Foreign Language Film, which is Best International Film now, mm-hmm. Best Original Score, and then it won for Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, and Best Makeup. Oh, one Cinematography too? Yeah. I didn't see that. That's great. And it absolutely deserves those things. Um, I do think, unfortunately, 
the CGI aspects of it are a little dated now. And I wish that it had gone full practical because mm-hmm. when it's practical, it's so amazing. Um, and Doug Jones is, I mean, obviously he's a frequent collaborator with Guillermo del Toro. And I, I really love that um, particularly the shape of water gave him something more to work with beyond being the guy in the suit. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's really great in this. And, and he also like the fawn is so memorable but the pale man is so iconic. I know. I feel like that's what everybody remembers from this and there's a reason, but there there's a lot of other really great stuff in it too. Mm-hmm. One thing that I find really frustrating is that like Western Americanization of international films because the original title has nothing to do with pan. The original title in, if we did a direct translation would be the labyrinth of the fawn. Mm. Um, I hate that. And then Guillermo del Toro has talked about how based on his previous film, The Devil's Backbone, he was really unimpressed with just the um, the generic subtitles that came out for English language versions. So he actually did the subtitling for this film. Mm. So very much like Bong Joon-ho, who like collaborates specifically with somebody to ensure that the English language translation is as rich and complex and, and accurate as possible. And it's not about being a one-to-one accuracy with the literal thing of what is said, but how do we convey the meaning that might get lost in translation by like working with a translator and like not a transcriber, but a translator. Right. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm very glad that Guillermo del Toro did that work to make this a, a film that we benefit from as someone who as people who aren't Spanish language speakers, but makes me just so frustrated that, that isn't valued enough until a director has the clout and the money to insist that that happens. And we've certainly watched um, international films that are subtitled and then like these subtitles clearly suck. Like this clearly, like we felt that way about when evil lurks where we're like, Mm -hmm. I feel like we're losing the richness of what is likely there in the original dialogue. Yeah. Like they, they use, they use AI (laughs) to translate. Yeah. Like they'll use the same word multiple times across the movie but the translation and the subtitles is different each time it's used which could be on purpose like something i noticed in this film is there's a a a moment where a character says the translation is i would but they say something like um sacrifice or something like that and so it's like i feel like what's what's being said is i will sacrifice Mm -hmm. um and then they say the translation is i would again and it's a different word being used it's Mm. not the sacrifice so or whatever it is um but that could be intentional i don't know so ah just sometimes i wish i could speak all the languages yeah (laughs) easy peasy (laughs) wouldn't that be great yeah but you know that said this movie still holds a place in my heart that's very near and dear and it was my introduction to more of the magical realism that was that is Guillermo del Toro and his storytelling. And it rewatching it now made me want to go and revisit his work even more. And just yeah, engage with him as a speaker. I'll I'll kind of end what we're talking about here with you and I had a had a brief but fairly rich discussion about how we interpret the end of the story because it's an it's a it's an ending that is open to interpretation and. Guillermo del Toro does have his own interpretation, which he has said, unlike Life of Pi, where Jan Martel will not say how he interprets the ending. Um, but beyond that, Guillermo del Toro has said, quote, 
that the film should tell something different to everyone. It should be a matter of personal discussion. Like that was his goal that you like not even discuss it with other people, but that you discuss it with yourself. And that's really beautiful. And I think he certainly accomplished that. And I'm glad that this film gave him the accolades to just keep making the work he wants to make. Absolutely. How did Pan's Labyrinth make you feel? Just enraptured with the storytelling and visuals. How did it make you feel? Moved by the sorrow, humanity, and artistry. 100%. Should we name some of the dads of the week? Yeah, let's talk about dads. This was, you know, sometimes we have weeks where it's like I'm really having to pull teeth to figure out who the dads are. And in this one, I'm like, there is a rad dad, a clear rad dad, and a clear bad dad in every film we watched. I do have some honorable mentions that I've. Okay. That I've listed. Because you're like, there was too many. Yes. I mean, I'm sure that we were kind of on the same page about the pool to pull from. Yeah. Um, But the question will be, who did we ultimately settle on? So why don't you tell me who your bad dad is? Uh, I chose Captain Vidal from Pan's Labyrinth. Um, Because not only is he a bad dad, but he's a dangerous dad. He's cruel, selfish, power hungry. Um, it's his, he, he's living life like it's his world and we're lucky to live in it. Uh, nasty, nasty, nasty. He he can fuck off. So I specifically, I'm going to speak to what you said because I didn't pick Vidal. I picked Yon Suk from Train to Busan. Dishonorable mention for me. (laughs) (laughs) So while Vidal is obviously despicable, to me, there's something about the inherent selfishness of Yon Suk and the way that he abuses the kindness and humanity of others that I find even more despicable. Vidal doesn't hide that he's despicable. I mean, we see Ophelia, before she's even really properly met him, say to Mercedes, he is not my father. He's not fooling anyone he's, he's that kinda, he's a bad guy. Like he's a he's a bull in a in a china shop. Like he just moves through it. Yes. And anything if you're not getting out of his way, he's just going to destroy you. And so he's certainly despicable. Absolutely. I hate him. But Yonsuk manages to rally people to his side, not out of fear. I mean, there's people who in Pan's Labyrinth say they're working with him, with Vidal, who aren't. Mm-hmm. And they can like trick him into thinking that because he believes he has such a pulse on everybody. Whereas with Yonsuk, he actually manages to get people to do what he wants them to do. And then, I mean, I don't want to ruin the film and I'm not going to, but there's moments where like the kindness and humanity of others is offered to him. And he totally spits in the face of that. Well, he's exploitative Um, of, of their fear of their kindness of, and yeah, of all of the emotions of the people around him for his own gain. Yeah. They both suck. I don't know what to say. Yeah. They're both real fucks. I'm going to go Young Sook. Okay. Well, Young Sook, don't, don't be, be your dad. dad. Who's your rad dad? I picked Babe. <laughs> real nice. You I didn't? I didn't pick what? Babe. How did you not pick Babe? You'll see. Go ahead. Oh, no. I. You can have Vidal. I want Babe to be the rad dad. <laughs> we'll talk about it after. Okay. Okay. So, Babe. Babe believes implicit in others but not to the point of being like hoodwinked by others mm-hmm. I feel like and I think what is so beautiful about the character of Babe is that he gives other people the benefit of the doubt he tries to help other people 
And, you know, sometimes he gets emotionally and physically hurt in the process. And yet that never makes him lose his emotional IQ. Mm. Like he never, he never gets hardened by it. He like, he still cries. He still believes he still loves he still mourns like all of those things still exist for him um and he doesn't like fall apart when he you know like when he learns what happened to his family he takes a moment to there's this moment in Macbeth, not to take everything back to shakespeare mm-hmm. where Macduff has found out that his entire family has been slaughtered by uh, Macbeth's army and he starts crying and uh future king of scotland malcolm says like dispute it like a man and he says i will but i will also feel it like a man and like for the 1500s shakespeare saying crying is feeling it like a man is very radical and i feel like babe embodies that like Mm -hmm. i am allowed to cry i am allowed to mourn i am allowed to feel this way and that is good and we should and he just like he brings everybody together across species how beautiful is that yeah he's a little light who did you pick I picked Sangwa from Training to Busong. Of course you did. I mean, he is just an active force of love and care and a prime example of family and loved ones first. And he's willing to do whatever his loved ones need. Even if that means like putting himself out to do what they need. This he, is the guy from Eternals, yes? Yeah. Okay. Um, and he seeks to help others understand why he does that and why that should be a dad's role. I mean, he's, he's definitely the other side of the coin from our, from the, the bad dad. Babe made people vegetarians. This is very true. I feel like we could have, but I'm a cheerleader trained to Busan. Cause like Gong, Yi's also a daddy, but I didn't actually call him daddy. <laughs> I feel like we've been daddying a lot lately. Well, don't I don't want to sound too thirsty. I do have a daddy though. <laughs> oh, oh shoot. Um Yeah, let's do babe. Okay. Also voiced by Chucky from Rugrats. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Babe, be yeah, our dad. dad. My honorable my honorable mentions for Rad Dad were also uh Herb Simon, Benny Tafty from Are You There God? And Mercedes. Mercedes. From Pan's Labyrinth. I mean, there was a lot, honestly, there was a lot of rad dads and there were a lot of bad dads this week. This was tough. Yeah, yes, indeed. My daddy, disputed if you want, I picked Farmer Hoggett. What? Jimmy Crom's baby. <laughs> okay. He's a long boy. And I actually like, I don't know. I think he's pretty friggin' handsome in this in this movie. Especially when he does that jig. Oh, big time. I I started getting welly. When he starts singing that fucking tune, the the like theme music in Babe is so good and just it just tickles the part of my brain and my heart that can make me really emotional. And it starts as soon as he starts singing to that damn pig, I'm like, you son of a bitch. That'll do. <laughs> so there you go. Babe is our rad dad. But but uh, I guess James Cromwell, I mean, I'm going to let you daddy however you want to daddy. Hell yeah. Farmer Hoggett. Oh, baby. Wheat woot. (laughs) For Rod Rec this week, we're each going to bring something to the table because we each engaged with something that we really, really like. So, Elliot, why don't you start us off? Uh, I've talked about it on our most recent episodes a little bit, but I finally finished and cannot recommend enough 
Spider-Man 2 for PlayStation 5. If you're able to access it, or even if you're a Let's Play person watching it on YouTube, I highly recommend it. It was phenomenal. I really like the first PlayStation game. I like the follow-up, the Miles Morales game. And this is bringing both Spider-Mans together, man. And it is awesome. It is one of my favorite games of the year. It's one of my favorite games I've ever played. I've never, if you're a big trophy head and getting all the stuff to get the trophies, I've never platinumed a game before. I platinumed this because it is just such a joy to play. And the story was awesome. And I've put on the record that I've always been a Batman guy, but more recently I've become a Spider-Man guy and Spider-Man is my main guy. It's just incredible. It's one of the best Spider-Man stories ever. And you get to, you get to play it. You get to be Spider-Man. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, and multiple Spider-Man. How cool. So highly recommend Spider-Man 2, the game. It's amazing. What's your rad rack? Well, as video games are to you, reading is to me. And movies are to both of us. Um, so I read a book recently that like completely blew me away. Five out of five. One of the best things I've ever read in my life. Um, and our good friend Cassandra Hamilton Brown, who was on a past episode, it is one of her favorite books of all time. And I've known that for a long time and recently had a chance to read it. And we were talking after I read it and just shocked that it's not as well known as it should be in my mind. So it's the book Butter, Honey, Pig, Bread by Francesca Equiesa. She currently lives in Halifax and has lived in Nigeria. Um, so it's Canadian element here and, and, we are fond of um, Halifax and the East Coast as well. It's just such a beautiful book. I subjected you to the last chapter because I like knew that if you do read it, it's not going to be for a very long time. And I needed you to to hear how beautiful the writing is and how beautiful the stories are. And and you liked it. Yes, it's gorgeous. Did the just reading the last chapter made you cry? Oh, I yeah. cried a lot. Um, some of the most beautiful characterization I've ever read and. Um, watching Pan's Labyrinth really made me think of it because part of the story of Pan's Labyrinth is Ophelia is told when she gets to this um, world that she was a princess of a magical world and has like currently been bound to human form. And that's something that's happening in Butter, Honey, Pig, Bread too. It's narrated from three characters and one of them has existed outside of the human realm but is choosing to be bound to a human body and, and very much in a magical realism way. It's a very real story. And this is a magic is a part of it in this very realistic way. Uh, it does have some really upsetting content, specifically um, sexual assault. But the movie is like this beautiful testament to family and bonds and connection and resiliency and healing through trauma. And I just can't recommend it enough. Butter, honey, pig bread. It was a Canada Reads book once. It didn't win, but... That's great. You said the movie. Did you mean the book? I did mean the book. I said the movie. Yeah. <sighs> My brain. Movies on the brain. Movies on the brain. What brings us together. <laughs> uh, that's wonderful. Two red wrecks for the price of one, baby. Read a book. What up? <laughs> Read a book. Play a video game. Watch a movie. Art is art is art. We believe in different mediums. We love them all. Seek out great stories where there's great stories. And thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. As I mentioned, get into the Hunger Games with us on our new Rad Rep episode dropping this Sunday. Very excited for it. You can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. 
get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual Letterboxd accounts. Our usernames are in the show notes. And we would absolutely love you forever if you could share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. That's going to do it for these babes this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot. My dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.